I'm what you would call a teleological existential atheist. I believe that there's an intelligence to the universe, with the exception of certain parts of New Jersey. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, the concept of God, Buddha, Shiva, Christ, Jah. The only word for this is transcendent. I mean, this man is God. He's got millions of followers who would crawl all the way across the world just to touch the hem of his garment. Yeah, must be a tremendous hem. You are so self-righteous, you know? I mean, we're just people. We're just human beings, you know? You think you're God. I gotta model myself after someone. Our guest is Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. The concept of God, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Unbelievably transplendent. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the concept of God. First, we'll, uh, we'll ask exactly what we mean when we talk about God. A person, an impersonal force, nature itself, perhaps. Then we'll zero in on some at least apparent puzzles and paradoxes that arise out of the Judeo-Christian Islamic conception of God as an all-perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, and ideally moral being. And then finally, we'll consider Plato's ancient question, the one he raised in the Euthyphro, is the good good just because God likes it, or does God like the good because it's good? But first, John, I want you to tell me this. Why exactly are we talking about the concept of God instead of talking about God himself or about the existence of God? Well, let me appeal to my pal David Hume to help answer that. He, he puts uh, this little argument into the mouth of his character Philo to show how easy it is to prove that God exists. Nothing exists without a cause. The original cause of this universe, whatever it may be, we call God and piously ascribe to him every species of perfection. But if I remember my Hume, Philo's being ironic there. I mean, the Big Bang could be the original cause of the universe, but does that make it God? That's weird. No, you're exactly right. Uh, you remember your Hume well, Ken. Philo is being ironic. His point is that until we decide what we mean by the term God, until we decide what attributes God has to have, there's no substance in discussing whether God exists or doesn't exist. Some people might call the Big Bang God. Others would say, well, the Big Bang isn't God. It's, it hasn't got the requisite uh, properties of caring and charm. Others say God has to be a person. But finally, some people have a very abstract conception of God as just what, whatever you're ultimately concerned about. So I get your point. I mean, in order to, the reason we're talking about the concept of God, because we want to say, what properties does something really have to have to deserve the title God, right? Absolutely. And, and we're not just spinning our wheels here. Historically, there are different conceptions of God, and they're associated with different religious traditions, different sects also within a religion, and, and even different thinkers within a sect. And often the debates about the nature of God turn on really philosophically interesting issues, which is why we're thinking about it. Well, and I, I can see that. I mean, a lot of thinkers think that if God is perfect, then God must be infinite, say, since any limitation, uh, any restriction would be a limitation, and limitations are imperfections. But other thinkers think uh, an infinite being? That makes no sense. It rises all kinds of paradoxes. 
Well, maybe the biggest divide is over whether God has to be a person. The so-called Abrahamic religions, that is Judaism and Christianity and Islam, that all trace uh, their traditions back to Abraham of the Old Testament who spoke with God, they think of God as a person, the very guy we read about in the Old Testament that spoke to Abraham. But a single God as a person like that isn't so clearly a part of all other religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. Well, you know, if God is supposed to be an infinite and perfect person, he doesn't sound very much like any person I know. They're all finite and not so perfect. And he doesn't sound like the God of the Old Testament who is wrathful, vengeful, jealous, prone to ethnic cleansing. That He doesn't sound so infinite. Well, so you might think, Ken, but that's why some of the smartest philosophers of each generation end up devoting a lot of their synapses to working these things out. Now, we have one of them with us today to help us, Richard Swinburne from Oxford, and he's going to hopefully explain how this all fits together. You know, if we're going to spend most of our time trying to understand this concept of God in the Abrahamic tradition, maybe we ought to first spend a little time on some other conceptions of God. Well, our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, spoke to someone with a very different view of God. She files this report. San Francisco is home to just about every concept of God you can imagine. I headed down to the Saraha Center, a Buddhist temple right in the heart of the city. It's part of the new Kadampa tradition, a sect that has sparked controversy for breaking with the Dalai Lama and for having what some call a cult-like devotion to the movement's religious leaders. My name is Michael Rollins. I'm a teacher here at Saraha Buddhist Center, and I've been studying and practicing with this tradition for about seven years. Rollins says before becoming a Buddhist, he was living on the streets, addicted to crack cocaine and methamphetamines. Now he lives in a house with 14 other Buddhist practitioners and dedicates about 30 hours a week to the temple. I asked him about the Buddhist concept of God. In the new Kadampa tradition, we don't believe in such a God as a creator of the world. However, we believe that the world appears to a mind that perceives it. So there's no inherent world that exists independently of a mind that perceives that world. So uh, it, w- it would almost be like each one of us is God or the creator to our own world. What I experience is my truth and what you experience is your truth. And there's no judgment to be able to say that I'm right and you're wrong. That leads me to a thought experiment. What if, in the world that I create through my perception, I strongly believe that God exists? Would Buddhists agree that in my world there is a God? What we would consider is described in Buddhist teachings on karma or cause and effect. The experiences and the conditions that we now have arise from the causes that we created in the past. So if we believe that there is a God that is the inherent creator of our world, it's due to the fact that we created the causes to experience that effect now. Okay, so if Buddhists don't believe there's a God out there calling the shots, how do they know what's good and what's not? The Buddhist view on virtuous and non-virtuous depends upon our intention. So if we have the intention to help others, then we develop good karma. However, if we have the intention to harm others, then we develop negative karma. So Rollins poses the question, if you suddenly push the person standing next to you down onto the ground, is that good or bad? The answer depends on whether, for example, you intended to push them out of the way of an approaching car, 
or into its path. However, because human beings suffer from what is called self-grasping ignorance, many times we can have the intention to help others and we can wind up harming them. Rollins says Buddhists' goal is to create enough good karma that they can eventually become a Buddha. But he says some non-Buddhists make the mistake of equating that idea with God. Buddha means awakened one. So a Buddha is not a god or a creator of our world, merely a living being who is reliable in the sense that they have completely perfected minds of love and compassion for all living beings and only wish to help and benefit others. Rollins says every person has the potential to become a Buddha, but of course it takes a lot of work, and he says that spiritual practice might not be right for everyone. Actually, Buddha said, don't believe in what I say because I'm called Buddha, but test the teachings, try them out for yourself, and see if they work for you. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. I'm John Perry. I'm pretty immersed in self-grasping ignorance, and with me is Ken Taylor, and I'll bet he is too. Well, I don't know. Our guest is Richard Swinburne. He's professor of the philosophy of the Christian religion at Oxford University. He's author of many, many books, including The Existence of God. Richard, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you very much. Uh, Hi, Richard. Uh, Let me first ask you a sort of a personal question. I mean, growing up and being a philosopher of the Christian religion professor at Oxford isn't every young man's ambition. How 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 did you get interested in this and end up where you are? Well, I suppose I was always religious uh, since before I can remember. But as I grew up, I realized that many intelligent people were not religious. And they, they were saying, surely there isn't such a thing as goodness. So how can God be perfectly good? Um, surely science has really shown there is no God. Uh, and anyway, surely the Bible is not trustworthy historically. Now, the leaders of the church, the priests and bishops, seem to be giving me not intelligible answers. They seem to be giving very feeble answers. So I felt that there was a need to provide better justifications of the Christian religion well, and I, I, those I, that were then about. I'm very glad you uh, thought that and ended up where you are, so we can talk to you about this. Now, your book is entitled Existence of God, but I'm sure that that uh, you, you wouldn't go along with what Philo said and piously call the beginning of things God, whatever it was like. You, can you tell us what kind of essential ingredients of the concept of God that are involved in your thinking and and maybe what the biggest difference with other concepts associated with the word God are? It's a big subject, but I know you can be brief. Uh, well, my thinking is, I think, the same as that of uh, most Christians throughout the centuries, though, as you pointed out in your introduction, not all Christians have exactly the same concept. He's supposed to be a personal being. We are persons. We have Uh, powers to move our arms and legs, we have beliefs about what the world is like, and we have choices. We choose to do this or that, but we are subject to irrational influences and don't always choose what is good. God is supposed to be personal, but unlike us, his powers are infinite. He can do everything. He's omnipotent. 
Um, his beliefs are all true, and he has true beliefs about everything. Uh, but he's let me, omniscient, Richard, let me just stop he's you. perfectly free. Let me just stop you there that for a That means that he can do... Um, uh, he's only influenced by rational considerations in what he does. Uh, Richard, let me stop you for a second. that's what makes him God. Yeah, Ken's, Richard, o- Ken's omnipotent on this show. Let, so let, me, let me ask you a question about that. Let, I, let, I think we're going to talk mostly about this personal God right, in the course of this show, but... There are religious traditions in the Hindu, some Hindu versions of the Hinduism. Think, don't think of God as a as a person. Just think of this great undifferentiated sea of consciousness that's empty of anything. And and what you do, you don't worship God. You try to have union with that sea of consciousness. Why believe God is a person rather than some kind of impersonal uh, something or other? Why believe? Well, I think. That- the best arguments uh, from the data, most general phenomena of the universe, that there is a physical universe, that it's uh, governed by regular laws of nature, these natures are su- these laws are such as to lead to the evolution of human beings, and that human beings are conscious, these things need explaining. And I think that the simplest and therefore most probably true explanation of them is in terms of a personal being who brought them about, because a personal being of the kind I've described would seek to bring about good things, and we are good, and um, his agency would explain our existence. But I can't see that the Hindu or Buddhist uh, ultimate, whatever it is, uh, gives us any gives any reason to expect that we would exist or that the universe would have this character. Okay, Richard, now when we focus on, on, on this concept of God as a personal being, the Abrahamic tradition, uh, I, I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time wondering, well, how do you fit these two things together, this perfection, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly free, and the personal being? Uh, that is, how do we fit them together logically and philosophically? But But first, just tell me historically, in the Old Testament, were they thinking of, of God as perfect and infinite, or is that just something that developed uh, in the Middle Ages, and, and the concept you're talking about that we have now is, is kind of something that grew historically? Richard, I'm going to ask you to hold the answer to that question, Joe, just after the break, okay? Keep that question in mind. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing the concept of God with Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. What's your concept of God? Is God a person, a big man in the sky, a big woman in the sky, an impersonal force permeating the universe, some abstract object like the number of numbers or the number of fans of Philosophy Talk? Has your concept of God changed over the years? Join us by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Coming up, the puzzles and paradoxes of the concept of God, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. What is your concept of God? This is Philosophy Talk. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Tell us your thoughts. Have you ever puzzled about the concept of God? If you have a particular conception of God, what made you arrive at that? Was there something in your life, in your experience? Have you found the concept of God paradoxical? 
Tell us your thoughts. The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. John, so you had a question for Richard just before the break. What was the Well, mind? just historically, do these two parts of the conception of God, that God is a person and that God is perfect, are they full-blown in the beginnings of the Judeo-Christian tradition, or is this, this an accomplishment of, of lots of philosophy and theology? I think they're there in most parts of the Old Testament. Of course, they don't use the word omnipotent, but the idea is there, and it's certainly all there in the New Testament and uh, in the subsequent Islamic, Judaic, and above all, Christian tradition, yes. What about the vengeful, wrathful, angry nature of God who floods the earth to wipe out most of his creation to get it all re- uh, rebooted again? I mean, that doesn't seem like a... It sounds like, well, God must have screwed up in the creating... So he's not all-powerful, all and he's not all-loving. I mean, you think anger is an imperfection, I guess, you might think. I mean, so what about all that? A uh, number of different points I'd make there. The first is that uh, much of the church from the first, uh, second century onwards tended to take quite a bit of the Old Testament in a metaphorical sense. We don't realize this because interpretation of the Old Testament became a very literalistic in the Protestant tradition from the 16th century onwards. But um, take, for example, a, a verse of the Psalms, where the Psalm 137, where, where the psalmist uh, pr- pronounces a blessing on those who smash the heads of the children of Babylon against the stones. <laughs> yes. Well, most of the Christian theologians in the third, fourth, fifth century and so on said that wasn't to be taken literally. Uh, It was that uh, the psalmist was recommending on God's behalf that we should smash the children of Babylon, which were to be interpreted as our bad desires, against the rock, which was Christ. So there's a lot of metaphorical interpretation uh, of the Old Testament, which was part of the tradition which which that was accepted as a a Christian uh, book. But another point is that the Old Testament is certainly keen to make the point uh, that God has the right to give us life for as long or short a period as he likes. Um, He may cause us to die by a natural death, or he may give someone else the right to take it away. And that, I think, must be also kept in mind. So there's two sorts of considerations that uh, we need to bear in mind. When I look at the Old Testament, I mean, I I see what you're saying, but there seems to be a a little bit of a root of a conflict there that's a little hard for, in my mind, to to work out. On the one hand, uh, uh, it's monotheistic, and if there's only one God, then, then the whole logic of perfection gets started, because if there's only one God and he's the creator of heaven and earth, like it says in Genesis... Uh, where's the imperfection going to come from? What other force? What other standard? On the other hand, you've got some things that are hard for me to make too much metaphorical sense of, like when when God is telling the Israelites, look, uh, when you take over your territory, if somebody's been living there for many generations, you better kill them. Uh, If they've just been there for a generation or two, maybe they'll find some other place that they can go to. But uh, long-term residents, you better kill them. Now, I mean, how, how do you... How, how do you make any sense of that as as uh, as as something a loving, the the God of the New Testament might say? 
Well, uh, the two points I've already made are crucially relevant. Uh, not all the theologians took all that sort of th talk uh, literally. And if we're to interpret the Bible, we must it interpret it as a Christian document. That is to say, we must interpret it with the conventions for understanding it, which were part of the tradition with which it was accepted. Um, to take the whole thing in a literal sense is, I think, contrary to the tradition of the first 1,500 years of Christianity. Okay, um, now, now just... But, and uh, then I repeat the other point, that is to say, uh, that as with territory, um, with territory as with life, God uh, lends us these things, and if that's the case, he has the right to tell somebody else to take it away from them. And uh, he needs to make that point very clearly to us that our lives and our possessions are on loan from him. Oh, okay, and, so, so um, Richard, I, I, he was very keen I, to I, establish a I, monotheistic community. I'll give you, I, I give you the Old Testament, but now um, where where Judaism and Islam part company with Christianity with exactly what to do with Jesus, and Jesus is a, a flesh and blood human being. So he's definitely a person, but he doesn't seem to be omniscient, omnipotent. And, you know, I, I guess he's morally perfect, although he was kind of mean to that fig tree. Uh, so how does Christianity <laughs> put together this historical being who's definitely a person and this kind of more creator of everything that's completely perfect? That is, how does it, I know how it goes together, but how does a philosopher make sense of all that? Well, uh, the philosopher makes sense of it because, it, to start with, it has to make sense of it because uh, it follows from the nature of God that if he makes us suffer for good causes, and I think he does make us suffer, and I think they are for good causes, uh, if he's a really loving parent, he wants to share that with us, and so he would want to come to earth and endure what we have to endure. And the traditional Christian way of doing that is to say that while he retained his divine nature, uh, when he came to earth, he adopted a human nature as well. That is to say, he had two different ways of thinking and acting, both as divine, knowing everything, and as human, with limited knowledge. And we can begin to make sense of that notion uh, in the light of Freud's teaching that people often do different sorts of actions under the influence of different belief systems. But, but Richard, no, wait a minute. I, I've got to start. I've got to challenge you there. I think you, I think we're uh, delving deep into paradox. But I want to remind our listeners: you're listening to Philosophy Talk, and we're talking about concepts of God with Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. And we've got a whole flood of callers, 1-800-525-9917, or email us, comments at philosophytalk.org. But we've got Mark in San Francisco on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Mark. Hi, thank you. Um, so the Professor Swinburne uh, assumes that humans are good. However, from my point of view, or actually from the point of view from another species, humans could be easily said to be not good. For example, if you're a tiger and you have no more habitat to live in, humans have been a disaster. And I'm just wondering why we should assume that God is, uh, or that human beings 
have any kind of good nature whatsoever. And take Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and all well, no. sorts of evils. Well, from, again, from the Tiger's perspective, Hitler and all those other gentlemen might have been quite good uh, oh, I agree. if they reduced the human population. <laughs> oh, that's true. Mark, I'm just, I'm just heaping on the reasons for thinking that humans aren't such a great lot. Okay. But thanks for the call. Richard, how do you want to respond to it? Well, I never said humans were a good lot. Uh, it's, it's obvious that they are a mixture of good and evil. But we have a free will. We can choose whether to do good or whether to do evil. And uh, we can make our own characters. Each time we make a good choice, we become more, it becomes more easy to make a good choice next time. But aren't we God's, Richard, aren't we God's direct issue? Didn't God make us directly? And if, if, how can, if humans aren't so good, then either God was an imperfect designer or, or, I mean, how, how can we not be good if we're God's direct issue? Uh, God gave us a kind of goodness that even he, do, he himself doesn't possess. That is to say, the ability to choose between good and evil. Just as human parents, uh, uh, good human parents, that is, uh, give children uh, some freedom to choose what they believe to be bad because they think it's even better that the children should make up their minds for themselves as to how they should act. And uh, a generous God, if he makes us, isn't going to m determine our every move. He wants us to uh, uh, be good uh, because we've chosen to okay, be that sounds, not made by him. That sounds fun, and I know that's a kind of standard Christian response. But look, God gives Hitler the free will to choose to exterminate the Jews. God gives the capitalist pig the free will to, to choose to pollute the air and cause global warming, going back to Mark's question. That's certainly not good for me that Hitler had, if I'm the Jew in this concentration camp. I mean, how is it good for me that Hitler had this free will to wreck up God's plan, unless God planned that I be no, in the no. concentration camp. I mean, what, what's going on there? Uh, well, firstly, make the point that it wasn't just Hitler that produced the Holocaust. It was innumerable bad choices of people over many centuries who produced an atmosphere of Jew-hating which uh, made it possible for Hitler. So many people exercise bad choice. And, of course, if you're in the concentration camp, it's bad for you. But... You, too, have a choice in that situation. You have a choice as to whether to make your character for good or ill because you can bear what is happening to you with courage and patience and helping the others in that situation, or you can bear it with bitterness. And that's how we form our characters. And it's far more important to form a good character during our earthly life than to enjoy a comfortable existence. So the Jew, in a way, and I say this and I hope I won't be misunderstood, is privileged to be allowed to make choices which help him to form his character. I love this God who does that. We've got lots of callers on the line. 1-800-525-9917. Liz in Oakland. Uh, welcome to Philosophy Talk, Liz. What's your comment or question here? Yeah, I'd like to say that um, our minds are finite and God is infinite. We can't really understand what God is, and I think it's as we delve more and more deeper into that science, we see that God is more on a, on a science level than on a personal level. Uh, in the Christian tradition, it was always Jesus who was a, a personal God, not God himself. I mean, that's almost blasphemous, blasphemous to uh, consider him. A personal God. Uh, Liz, uh, a very interesting question. We've got an email that uh, uh, hits a somewhat similar note from Mitch. 
He says, I've long considered that any conceptual formulation I can de- identify with God must necessarily be so much smaller than the reality as to be almost trivial. I've come around to the point of view that addressing prayer to such a diminished conception is pointless and misleading. So there with Liz and Mitch, we have kind of a traditional view, Richard, as I understand it, which is in, in trying to figure out why the world is as it is, we have to keep in mind that God's got an infinite mind, and we may just not able to imagine what he had in mind. But then Mitch extends this and wonders how he can pray to someone that he doesn't understand very well. Well, if he really doesn't understand him at all, then he certainly can't pray to him. I mean, uh, the whole point of this program is to bring out that there is a Christian concept of God which can be explained in words. Of course, these words have to be stretched a bit. That's to be used in somewhat analogical senses. But then uh, when describing uh, what physicists uh, discover, we have to use words in somewhat analogical senses. Uh, Light doesn't really consist of particles in a totally literal sense or of waves, but light consists of something like it. And uh, what the words I'm using for describing God have to be stretched a bit, but they can give us quite uh, enough of a concept of what's involved. I I, I take it. It it seems to me that um, we can understand, I don't like saying infinitely uh, knowledgeable or something like that, we can understand uh, a God who knows all things. There's a qualification I'd put on that, but we'll come to that in due course, no doubt. And a God who can do anything. This is a very simple notion. If you describe a certain action and uh, the description makes sense, then God can do it. Well, well let's go back like up, what, though. Let's get to one of your qualifi- qualifications I think you might have been uh, alluding to there. I mean, because you alluded to it when you talked about why Christ, God, became flesh, so that he'd have these two ways of thinking about things, so that he could experience what we experience. You know, uh, an infinite mind that is in an infinite mind of an invulnerable, omnipotent person, how could he understand what it's like to feel pain? How could he, a, a, a mind that's out of time, what, how could he understand what it's like now to want to do something? Or, right? to, or to be late for an appointment like I, I am. I don't accept that God is out of time. Uh, I think God uh, is everlasting, not out of time. And I think the notion of God being out of time is quite unknown to the biblical tradition, and it crept in from Neoplatonism okay, but think about invulnerability. the third century. Think about invulnerability. The God's all-powerful, impassable, can't be affected, lacks for nothing. I mean, some things are only knowable by a finite mind that has lacks, like what it is like to feel pain. Or hunger, uh, I or don't hunger. accept that only those who feel pain can know what it's like to feel pain. You can see this by a very simple sort of example. Suppose I've felt a lot of pain and uh, now know what pain is. Now, suppose you make a clone of me. That clone will also know what pain is, but he won't know what pain is because he's experienced it, because he only just came into existence. Well, will he know what it's like uh, for and, me to and feel what, pain? And that, that point illustrates uh, is that the argument is no good from the start. But in any case, um, God did, according to the Christian tradition, uh, suffer pain because he allowed himself to uh, have human limitations joined to his infinite nature for a significant period of time. Yeah, but then I think we're getting into more paradox. But let's see what some of our callers think. 1-800-525-9917. Kevin in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Kevin. Hi. Hi. Go um, ahead. What's I your? Think com- if you look at the analogy of a surgeon operating on a patient, 
where the scalpel is contaminated with the disease that they're operating for, it undermines the effectiveness of the procedure. If we always talk about God as a noun, it gets us into a gender cul-de-sac where God is a male and all this other anthropomorphism. If we use God as a verb, and I would suggest that people try this as an exercise, at least for a day, God then becomes process and relationship and flow, which is what we're discovering is the nature of the universe, and it gets a lot easier to get into, I think, a more refined conception of God. Okay, thanks. Cool. That what do you is think, Richard? We are discussing the Christian, Judaic, etc. concept of God, and what you've described is not that. What we are investigating is the coherence and possible truth of the Christian notion. Well, well, there was this philosopher Whitehead who who thought of himself as, as in this tradition, but he had, I don't know if he used God as a verb, but he thought of of God as a as a process, um, I guess. Uh, that made the structure of the world possible by emanating universals and eternal objects. I, I take it that process theology is not a big part of your view, Richard? No, it isn't, and it's not, it's not a big part of the Christian view either, because that sort of God won't explain the existence of the universe and its general characteristics, which has been absolutely central to the Christian notion of God, that it can do that. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing the concept of God with Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. In our next segment, we're going to go back to this uh, question that, that Plato asked in the Euthyphro. Did, did God say, do not kill, because God realized it was wrong to kill? Or is it wrong to kill because God said, do not kill? God and the good, when Philosophy Talk continues. How about it? Is, is killing wrong because God says so, or does he say so because it's wrong? If God said it was a good thing to torture cats, would that make it a good thing to torture cats? How about dogs or public radio program directors? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and our guest is Richard Swinburne from Oxford University. Richard, let me press the questions John was just asking you. Look, you can worry, well, God is perf perfect, not limited by anything, so, let's see. What he says goes. But then we say, why does what he says get to go? Why? Why? Isn't it just arbitrary? You say, well, no, because some things are intrinsically good and God recognizes the good. But then that, doesn't that make something above God? And we look like we've got a paradox here. So, tell me how, how we're out of that paradox. I think the most general principles of morality are independent of the will of God. Uh, for example, that it's good to help uh, the lonely and the starving and that we ought not to tell lies and that we should keep our promises and so on, all possibly with certain con um, qualifications. These principles are independent of the will of God. But among the most general principles of morality is that we have an obligation to please our benefactors and, above all, to obey those benefactors who are the source of our existence. For example, children have a duty to obey parents, not, I mean, just biological parents, but nurturing parents, because parents have brought them into existence and cared for them and given them education and so on. And that imposes an obligation on children. 
But of course, God is so much more the source of our existence than our parents, who simply uh, have the powers they do and exercise them because God has given them. I, but I think uh, at some, I think at some point, children outgrow their response, their their duty, as you put it, to obey their parents. They become self-owning, autonomous beings. Can we outgrow? Or is it? I mean, is it is it possible uh, yeah. that we can make our own, uh, you know, choices and 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 outgrow the any obligation? I don't know that we really do have an obligation, but outgrow any obligation to be obedient uh, to no, He who benefits us. Uh, all uh, children cease to be uh, dependent for their existence on their parents when they become who knows fifteen or whatever. Uh, whereas we never cease to be dependent on God, and uh, so we can never outgrow that obligation. But of course, God gives us freedom to disobey Him, but it would be immoral not to do. It would be immoral to do so. Um, well, but, but now, I how, think how, that He only issues commands if there's a point in it. But nevertheless, His issuing of command does impose an obligation. Some of the things that have been said God's, to be God's commands are simply him repeating the natural principles of morality. Others are ones which he issues in virtue of his authority, the grounds for which I have stated. Well, to, to go back to the Old Testament, uh, uh, there's various interpretations of the, the, the Abraham and Isaac story. But, but what, it, what it says to me is, is, you know, Abraham shouldn't have cut Isaac's throat, and his response to God, I mean, which, of course, he didn't in the end, but his response to God should be, well, you may be omniscient, and you may be omnipotent, but that doesn't mean I should do what you say if it strikes me as just wrong, like cutting my son's you, throat. You didn't read the end of, of Fear and Trembling and with the no. teleological <laughs> suspension of the ethical, but that's another point. But Richard, what, how do you want to respond to uh, John? Okay, I think it follows from God's perfect freedom and his omniscience that he is perfectly good because being perfectly free, he will be subject to no irrational influences and being omniscient, he will know what are all the moral truths so he will uh, never command us to do anything which is contrary to the natural principles of morality. Um, so the question arises about this story. Well, you could interpret it, I say, in, in a metaphorical way. And I do stress that the, the church's tradition for 1,500 years was to take some of this Old Testament stuff, not necessarily literary. But I'm quite happy to take, uh, as it were, the spirit of that uh, in a literal sense. And um, uh, God, if God has the right to take away our lives, it follows that God has the right to tell someone else to take away our lives. Whatever I have the right to do, e.g. take a piece of property back from you, I have the right to authorize someone else to do on my behalf. And so certainly God has the right to tell Abraham to deprive Isaac of well, his wait life. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, uh, Richard, let's, let's slow down here a bit. You, you're, you're, you said a couple things about God that I wonder about and his rights and all that. You know, okay, you said something about God never commands us to do anything irrational. Now, it depends on what we mean by rational. If, if reason is some finite human capacity, right, that we can exercise and it, maybe it grounds morality and all that. Right. Reason tells me I, I shouldn't kill my son. 
My son is most dear to me. I shouldn't kill my son. God's commandment to kill my son. And then the expectation that Abraham was supposed to have that he'll get Isaac back again, at least if you do it, as, interpret it as Kierkegaard interpreted it, is an irrational expectation. God tells me to do something absurd to uh, suspend reason. So, and many people think that, that God's commandments are one thing and human reason and what it delivers are another thing. So God does command irrational things. Where you irrational have no is, right to take away God, uh, your son's life. Um, only God has the right to do that, but he can authorize you to do it. And that's why all the various uh, evils of this world which God allows in virtue of his status, we certainly don't have the right to allow. And uh, although Abraham was originally the source of Isaac's existence, he was only the source of Isaac's existence because God gave him the power uh, to uh, keep Isaac in existence. And all the good that Abraham uh, gave to Isaac was, came in directly from God. So Abraham, on his own, without an explicit divine command, would certainly not have had the right to do that. Well, Richard, but I, I, the, I, the parable, I, and I take it as a parable, um, emphasizes that ultimately God has the right to take away any life and the right to authorize anybody else to. But I think uh, anybody should be very careful if they think they're authorized by God to do this. They well, need to be very confident. Well, let, let, me, let, let me follow up on that point, because that's another dimension of the Abraham story. I mean, let's, let's suppose you're like Abraham and you've got you've got someone that you're in conversation with, definitely a person, definitely a lot brighter and more powerful than you are, uh, telling you how you ought to kill your son. But unlike Abraham, you have another uh, very powerful, very omniscient, if possibly not omniscient being that seems to be communicating with you and says, for goodness sakes, don't kill your son. Now, epistemologically... That's your conscience, the voice of reason. That's <laughs> well, no, I'm saying epistemologically, you say, well, which one is God and which one isn't God? And it seems to me you'd use your kind of independent morality to say this one over here that's saying don't kill your son is more, pos- is more plausibly God. So does that tend to, to, well, of course, yeah, you've already, an, you, you, you uh, could as accept I say, that. You would yeah. need to be very, very confident on the grounds that I, uh, by my personal experience, don't have, but uh, would allow that some people may have, that some command of that character came from God in order to execute it. What natural reason tells us uh, is that we shouldn't go around killing people. And uh, God will back that command because he wants us to keep the dictates of natural reason. But there's always that qualification after most, but not all, the dictates of natural reason, that God, in virtue of his authority, has the power to uh, tell us to lay this aside and to, in order to do something which he commands. I don't, I don't know if we've solved the youth of problem, <laughs> but we've sort of made some progress and we've talked about it a lot. We've got a few last callers on the line. Uh, you're listening to Philosophy Talk and we're talking about concepts of God with Richard Swinburne and Martin in San Francisco. You may be our last caller, Martin. Hi, is this me? Yes. Okay, um, I just have this um, thing on my mind, you know, I have a lot of things uh, on my mind through the program, but I changed it as I listened, so I will bring That's this good. one up. How about, you know, the humanity despises usually, at least, uh, you know, modern, sophisticated humanity despises kings, rulers, definitely dictators, you know, Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, you name it, just any monarchs. Yet, humanity as such is clinging and 
and uh, you know uh, looking up to this supreme dictator supreme king supreme ruler god one himself you know would it be who says that there's only one okay would it be that there is maybe imagine that he had to consult with a body of god okay like martin of them, 30 of them senate of gods you know and then Okay, okay, Martin. In my in my omnipotence, I'm going to say we've got your point. Yeah. So, last uh, comment, Richard. You have any last comment on uh, uh, what? Yeah. Uh, the, the paradigm I was using for God was not king or dictator, but parent. He has brought us into existence. He has lavished the good things of life on us. Also, because this is a supreme good for us, he's given us a certain amount of suffering in order to have choices of significance as to how to react to it. Uh, and that's why we uh, uh, owe him all we, we have and why, if he commands us to do something, we have the obligation to do it. But he's not going to command us to something unless there's a very good reason. And um, in virtue of his perfect goodness, he will have a very good reason before he does. Phil, Phil Cusick sends us email making the very good point. Remember in the story that Abraham is something like 90 years old and Isaac is 40-something. I don't know why, but that does seem important. Well, on that note, <laughs> Richard, I'm going to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our guest has been Richard Swinburne. He's professor of the philosophy of the Christian religion at Oxford University, author of many things, but among them, the existence of God. So, John, what did you learn about the concept of God today? Well, you know... Uh, uh, I, I spent a lot of time on the concept of, of, of God in various points in my life when I was trying to make sense of things. And so uh, I just learned that, you know, there's there's a lot of smart people out there who, who are thinking about this, and Richard Swinburne is one of them. I should mention that the two smartest philosophers I've ever known, present company accepted, one believed in a in a infinity of concrete possible worlds in addition to ours. That's David Lewis. <laughs> yes, and, and the other is a, a very uh, committed Christian. I don't think squares lines up exactly with Swinburne on all things, but but very, very definitely a committed Christian. That must be Alvin Plantinga. Uh, well, it could be Alvin Plantinga, but I had Robert Adams uh, in yeah, mind, yeah. so let's make it the three. <laughs> and one thing I've learned from all this is, you know, you can admit that people are smarter than you, but you don't have to agree with them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, my, my thought, my last thought about this is that uh, if God has good reasons for everything that he asks you to do or commands you to do, the problem is he often keeps those good reasons to himself. Well, uh, that's you why know, epistemology is important. We I could agree. have gone and, you know, if you don't know who's talking to you, if you can't be sure of that, how do you know who's writing these books? Exactly. That's exactly. I mean, I thought you made a brilliant point, and I wish we had more time <laughs> to explore it, you know, because God speaks to you if it, in ways that says, do this odd thing. Mm -hmm. Right. You thought, well, who the heck is that speaking to me? Is it the devil or is it God? You know, I think that's a very important point that you made. Uh, important. I doubt if it's brilliant, but <laughs> hey. I'm I'm happy with important, Ken. And uh, so we got a lot of fodder for later shows. We should emphasize uh, it might have sounded like we were assuming the existence of God today, but we were just involved in a preliminary exercise getting straight about the concept of God. I think we had our wonderful gift for that right. purpose. If you're going to believe in God, this is what you're believing in. If, the, if you're going to prove the existence of God, this is what you have to prove. That's the kind of groundwork we were, we were doing. We got it, we, that's the kind of groundwork we were doing. Maybe before we get into the existence of God, we should survey all the major religions' conceptions of God. But for the final word, we turn to the divine Ian Scholes, one of our favorite demiurges, at least, the 60-second philosopher. 
Ian Scholes. I'm not a church-going man. I am, however, fascinated by arguments for the existence of God, which I find inventive, if not convincing. I'm interested in heresies, dogmas, manifestos, ideologies, cults, legends, any kind of belief. Being an insistently disbelieving kind of guy, any kind of certainty fascinates me. Some beliefs puzzle me, however. How can you be a Satanist, for example? I mean, if you believe that Satan exists, doesn't that presuppose that Satan's opposite number, God, exists? Kind of backing the wrong horse, aren't you? And atheism puzzles me. How can people be so certain about something that can't be proved? In other words, doesn't atheism require its own kind of faith? If so, what's the point? Even if you are an atheist, how can you be evangelical about it? The message is, there is no message. Well, thank you. Can I go home now? Several strikingly atheist books have been published over the past few years, one by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, another by Christopher Hitchens, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Hitchens once said in an interview, all religious belief is sinister and infantile. I'll tell that to Spinoza, pal. Back in 2002, there was an event called the Godless Americans March on Washington. It was not preceded by a prayer breakfast, by the way. Around 2,000 people attended. One of the attendees, Paul Geiser, decided he didn't like the term godless or atheist and teamed up in 2003 with a woman named Minga Futrell to form a new organization called The Brights. His members espouse a naturalist rather than supernaturalist worldview. The Brights include Richard Dawkins, Stephen Pinker, philosopher Daniel Dennett, James Randi, Penn Jillette, and Teller. Daniel Dennett wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times in which he said, quote, Don't confuse the noun with the adjective. I'm a bright is not a boast, but a proud avowal of an inquisitive worldview, unquote. Oh, Dennett may think he's not boasting, but that seems like magical thinking to me. If some guy or gal came up to you and declared, I'm a bright, I can guarantee you will have one of three responses. One, think, uh-oh, cult member, and back away slowly with a fixed smile on your face. Two, think resentfully, if you're a bright, what am I? Or three, say, I'm a bright, too. Show each other your lapel pins, perform the secret atheist handshake as the rest of the party backs away from you slowly with fixed smiles on their faces. Many atheists have not signed up, mainly because of the name The Brights. Christopher Hitchens called the name cringe-making. Matt Cooper, associate director of the Skeptic Society, pointed out in the Skeptical Inquirer that it's not the philosophy of the movement under debate, but the brand name. He suggested that the founders do some focus group testing for a better name. Well, I don't know. Faith in focus groups seems like more magical thinking to me. But my big quibble is this. Why on earth would atheists want to get together in the first place? After the initial exchange, I don't believe in God. Me neither. Well, what then? I say atheists form a knitting club instead. At least you get a sweater out of the deal. I have faith in that. I gotta go. Ian Shows, the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2007. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Special thanks to Devin Strolovich, Daniel Elstein, Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell City of Books, on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. <laughs>